0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown the Podcast From the historic Zone Radio studios Here's your host, Rich Kimball Hey there, welcome It is Downtown the Podcast Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you Downtown brought to you each week by Cross Insurance Where security meets strength This is episode number 270 Good to have you along with us pair of fine conversations for you this week. A little bit later on, we talked with the senior correspondent for CBS news, Jim Axelrod, and uh, talk about his career, some of the important stories and interesting people he's covered through the many years, but up first, a member of the rock and roll hall of fame founding member of the birds. One of the most recognizable guitar sounds in history with that Rick and Backer 12 string and a very interesting guy with a uh, roots and folk music who, uh, has done it all through the years as uh, both a member of the group and a solo artist and still making terrific music as well. He's out on tour. We had a wonderful time talking with Roger McGuinn here on downtown. I want to go back to the beginning. It was, uh, it was Elvis and Heartbreak Hotel that lit that fire, right? That's
1: right. I was given a transistor radio when I was 13. I used to ride my bicycle around Chicago listening to WJJD, which at the time was a rock station and I heard Heartbreak Hotel come over the air, and I, I went, wow, this is great. This is it was such a, a different kind of music, you know. I really hadn't been exposed to blues or too much country music at that point. And the rock and roll I'd heard was like Bill Haley and the Comets and, you know. So Elvis came over and it was just really uh,
0: captivating and different. So how old were you when you started uh, playing in clubs in Chicago?
1: Well, I got a guitar for my 14th birthday. I spent a couple of years learning how to play guitar and banjo at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. And after a couple of years, I got good enough to get a job at a coffee house. Um, So I was about um, maybe 16 when when I started playing. I I guess it would be semi-professionally. I was getting $10 a night, which (laughs) translated in today's money is $100. So I was living at home, and I saved my money. And I bought a nice martin guitar and a Vega long neck five string banjo, like Pete Seeger had and I was ready to go
0: that's fantastic and was it there where the limelighters first saw you?
1: yeah i after the coffee house gig, I walked down to the gate of Horn, which was mm. uh, <clears throat> was on uh, Dearborn and Chicago Avenue in the basement of the Rice Hotel. And it was, they had uh, folk music. They had a listening room and a bar. They're separated so you could, you know, people at the bar wouldn't interrupt the, the performances. And I'd, I'd walk, <clears throat> one night I walked into the bar and there was a jam session going on with the Limelighters and Theodore Bickell, and they saw me come in with my banjo and guitar from the coffee house gig and uh, Alex Hostel one of the Limelighters said, hey, what do you got there, kid? And I said, I got a banjo and a guitar. And he said, oh, great, break out the banjo. We've got too many guitars going so I played with them until 5 o'clock in the morning, and that's when they invited me to work with them.
0: And how did you end up getting together with Bobby Darren? Well,
1: it was a succession of people I played with. Um, after the Limelighters, I played with the Chad Mitchell Trio, and I, I was playing with the Chad Mitchell Trio in California at the Crescendo Club on Sunset, and Bobby Darren was out in the audience. He was there to see Lenny Bruce as we were opening up for Lenny. And he came backstage after the Chad Mitchell set and said, hey, I like what you're doing up there. I'm thinking about putting a folk music segment in my show, and I'd, I'd like to hire you. And I said, well, I've already got a job with the Chad Mitchell tree. And he said, yeah, what are they paying you? And I told him, he said, I'll double it. And I was I was ready to move on at that point anyway.
0: So I said, okay. Now, when did you first pick up that uh, Rickenbacker?
1: I didn't pick up a Rickenbacker until 1964. Um... I was already into the Beatles. Uh, I'd heard them on the radio. I, I, I bought their record, uh, Meet the Beatles, I think it was, and I'd learned all the songs. And I loved the Beatles. And so uh, David Crosby and Gene Clark and I, I think Chris Shelman went, went to the Pix Theater in Hollywood to see A Hard Day's Night. And that's the first time I saw a Rickenbacker 12-string. George Harrison had one. He'd been given by Rickenbacker and i thought that was a wonderful sounding guitar and it looked great too It was really a cool looking guitar so i went out and i traded a 12-string gibson acoustic guitar and my five string long neck banjo and got a rickenbacker and uh it was a great sound it was just the best sound
2: yeah this is bruce you got a a particularly good sound out of that jack elliot and i were driving in rhode island one time on the way to a gig and Tambourine Man came on the Birds version, and he said to me, "In two notes, I can tell you that's McGuinn." And um, it, it seemed to me that that forever that that's been true. I've always been wondered how you came up with the intro to Tambourine Man. Now, my friend Alan Sanders swears it's because you were playing études on the guitar. I don't know if she's telling me the truth or not, but that sounds pretty interesting. Well, Pete
1: Seeger had done uh Sis Joy of Men Desiring" on his it was called um, Goofin' Off off Suite. Mm -hmm. And I I learned it on the banjo, and then I translated it to the guitar. And so I had that in my head. But also, if you listen to that, that melody appears in the song, Mr. Tambourine Man, as well, in the
0: chorus. Mm -hmm. Your friend Chris Hillman was on with us a couple of years ago, and and he told a great story. He was in another band, but he went to a session, and it was you and and David and Gene working, and uh, he was impressed with what he heard. And Jim Dixon asked him, "Do you play the bass?" And even though, even though he didn't, like any good musician, he said, "Absolutely."
1: Yeah. Well, if you, if you take it till you make it, right? Right. Right. Uh, right. Well, we needed a bass player because originally David Crosby was supposed to be the bass player, but for some reason he couldn't sing and play the bass at the same time, and so he he got uh, the Gretsch guitar that teen clark was going to play and i i kept playing my rickenbacker and got chris to to learn how to play the bass but chris was already a guitar player and the bass is just a guitar with lower strings
0: now was it mr tambourine man that the record company said no this this can't be a single
1: no no that wasn't the case um we, we got the demo of it from whitmark and sons the publishing company in new york that dylan had and dylan uh, they, they were shopping his songs for other people to cover. And so we, we got this demo of it. It was like four and a half minutes long in two-four time. And Dylan and Ramblin' Jack were singing it. And uh, it didn't quite sound good. And Crosby said, I don't like it. So it was it was within the birds that uh, the song was controversial. Once we worked it up and had an arrangement, uh, Columbia Records had no problem with it.
2: You You said something, I don't remember... Uh, whether this was on an album cover liner notes somewhere about making the, the change in the sound from the days of Sinatra, I think you referred to it, almost like a roar or something and, and, and to a new sound. The, and, and I think of the harmonies of, of, of the birds being that new sound. And so much of it, how much of that was from listening to the limelighters and the Chad Mitchell trio and how much of it was Crosby and how much of it was just trying to find a new harmonic range for rock music?
1: Well, the the analogy was that the um, transportation devices of the time influenced music, and so I compared Sinatra to like a prop plane, like maybe a a super constellation, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. or, or, or. and then when jets came out, they they sort of wound up and and they did uh, different um, Doppler dynamics that, than uh, pro, prop planes did. So that was the, that was the thinking for that. Um, Folk music at that point was kind of reaching a, a peak. It had uh, kind of peaked out in 1965. And all the new folk singers were writing their own stuff, you know, like Joni Mitchell and so on. And so I I think it's just a matter of, of uh, listening to different things and the timing of it. I, I wanted to get um, a sound like the Beatles, but we, we used folk music as a a reference. And so it was just a combination of the two.
0: And, and you you guys get labeled as folk or folk rock, and yet there were so many different sounds that the birds created. What, what led you to uh, create, I, I think, an opus for you guys in Eight Miles High?
1: Okay, well, as you said, we got labeled as folk rock, and we didn't really want to get typecast in any particular box. So we experimented with different music, and... David Crosby was really into jazz and he introduced me to John Coltrane and I loved John Coltrane. I thought, this is really amazing. In fact, the first time I heard Coltrane, I felt like a red hot poker was searing through my chest. You know, it was just an amazing, overwhelming experience. So I wanted to learn how to play my Rickenbacker guitar like Coltrane played his saxophone. And I, I played scales for hours a day just to get my chops up to do that. And so we recorded eight miles high in a train fashion. You can hear a lot of opening and closing valves kind of thing like you did on the sax. And people labeled it psychedelic.
0: We're talking with Roger McGuinn here on Downtown. Sweethearts of the Rodeo was such a landmark album uh, in many ways, the genesis of country rock. But a- am I right that you you wanted to incorporate even more styles, jazz and blues elements as well into that album?
1: yeah I wanted to do a chronological, maybe a two record set, starting with early music, maybe Gregorian chant and the Baroque period and and move it up into how that became popular music and how uh, the Celtic music came over to the Appalachians and turned into country music. And uh, I wanted to do a just a whole like uh, chronological string of things, and then uh, rockabilly and rock and roll and get into jazz and kind of finish it off with space music on, on a synthesizer well it was a little too ambitious for everybody else, so they didn't really go along with me and that at that point we met graham parsons and he was really into country music and he, he was so infectious about it that he got us to go to nashville and record the sweetheart of the
0: rodeo from your perspective what's the artistic high point of the birds either an album or even a single
1: it's hard to say. I think maybe Notorious Bird Brothers was uh, mm. probably peak. We kind of peaked there. Uh, just to mention, with, you know, Eight Miles High. Um, oh, and the very first thing was, was you know, the whole uh, rock and roll and folk music combined. Mr. Tambourine Man, turn, turn, turn. You
0: had such a great relationship with Dylan through the years. Uh, can you can you share the story about the the creation of uh, the Ballad of Easy Rider?
1: Ballad was Easy Rider came about when Peter Fonda um, put some of his rock and roll songs on the soundtrack of the movie, just kind of as place cards, you know, place keepers. And then they grew to like it after they played it a few times. But he wanted one song that was the theme song or custom made for the movie. So he flew to New York and screened the movie for Bob. And Bob didn't like it. He didn't like <laughs> the ending, and so he wrote down some notes on a paper napkin. Said, "Here, give this to McGuinn. He'll know what to do with it." <laughs> and Peter came over to my house with his napkin, and it was like the Holy Grail. He said, "Bob wants you to have this, man." And so I, I, got it out. Didn't have a melody. It just had one verse and a chorus. And I, so I wrote the second verse and came up with a tune for
0: it, and that was it. Do you still open your solo shows with My Back Pages?
1: Yeah, I do. It's become kind of a theme song for me, like uh, Thanks for the Memories, or I Did It My Way.
0: I read somewhere, though, that you said uh, the birds and you're proud of the work that you did there, but they were in some ways a diversion from you becoming a a true folk singer.
1: Well, I always wanted to do like what Pete Seeger did, and I do it now. I I do a one-man show. And it's kind of like the uh, life of Will Rogers, except it's it's about me instead. And I, I just a chronological thing. I, I start out where I got my first job and how the songs came together and, and the different people I met. And it's people enjoy the stories.
2: You know, I arrived in in, in the village between. The end of the great folk scare and the start of the folk revival, whatever they call it, the second time around, was playing a lot of the same small clubs other people were playing. Him went and played in bands and stuff, but I found later in life that I, I really preferred playing solo. That it was not that it was back just to my roots, but that I controlled the show. Is, is that something you like about being a solo performer? I mean, it's you and the audience, and that's really it. Yeah,
1: it is. And uh, Rambler Jack had a hand in that. I was on the Rolling Thunder review with him, and he said, you know, Roger, the best time I ever had was when Polly and me went on, on the road with a Land Rover and threw the guitar in the back and played all these little clubs and things. And I said, that sounds really good because at that point, I had buses and trucks and equipment to ship and, you know, overhead and flying people around, and it was a hassle. And as you say, when you're up there by yourself it's uh, it's all you and you get all the fun
2: yeah jack and i toured together for 15 years and um one or two tours a year mostly in the northeast midwest and i always found that the best shows were the places were sort of a little bit out of the way, the, the, the crowd was full, they were they were, they were were excited, and you could just control the pace of things. I mean, I had my 40 minutes. I knew what I was supposed to do. But um, one of the things that, that I've said, heard so many people say about your solo show is that they always feel like, like it was just written yesterday, that it seems very fresh, the people that have seen it. How do you keep that happening?
1: Well, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, well, it's scripted. It's, it's a one-man play. And it's got different modules for different songs. I've, I've got all these different stories that I can weave in and out, depending on the audience and, you know, reaction and so on. But I, I love doing it. And I'm basically an actor at this point doing songs.
0: Your your Folk Den project has been such a remarkable effort. How did all that start?
1: Back in 1995, I was listening to a Smithsonian Folkways album of traditional songs and it dawned on me that at, by that point, all the folk singers were singer-songwriters. And if you look at NPR's top 100 folk songs, only eight of them are traditional. And I was concerned about the traditional part of folk music getting lost in the shuffle because of the music business uh, favoring singer-songwriters, basically for financial reasons. And I thought, what's going to happen when Pete Seeger or Odetta dies, and, and they have now, and you know, not many people doing traditional songs anymore. I thought, gee, I, sh- I could do something about that. Well, I've always been a, uh, into technology, and I had computers early on. I knew how to record on a computer. I knew how to put stuff on the internet, which had just opened up in the early part of the '90s and so on. And so I thought, well, maybe I could uh, have a web page and put folk songs up for free download, and uh, have the lyrics and the chords and a little story about the song, and people could learn the songs from that, and it would just keep them alive and that was the whole thing and over the years I started in 95 I've been doing it for what 20 some years now
0: well and it's wonderful to to see those songs kept alive and and the production is so good you create you create such great harmonies that it feels like you're listening to a band
1: well yeah i, I use the uh, Tools, and i overlay uh, tracks and so on yeah so i, I get a, a band sound
2: one of the things that i i learned from Dave Van Rock years ago is that it's the, w- the way to keep old songs alive is just to keep playing them. And he would talk about, um, sport and life, you know, which I think Brian McGee wrote when he was 15 years old, um, and talk about how if we don't keep these songs and the traditional songs alive, the new songs we write are only going to be based on somebody else's new songs. And so I really admire you for, for staying with that. Well,
1: I just love the music. You know, it's, it, it's like the, uh, it's like in architecture, the old Victorians were viewed beautiful and people tore them down and put up stainless steel building, you know, steel yeah. and glass buildings, and they're not quite as um, attractive.
0: What's it been like for you getting back out on the road uh, here, mostly post-COVID?
1: Um, it's great. It's really great to get back out there. And the audiences, my, my audience uh, was back in the maybe 20 so years ago they're still working nine to five and they couldn't show up except maybe on a friday or saturday night now now the kids have <clears throat> gone to college and they're out and they can come out anytime and uh, they do and it's really fulfilling
0: can you talk a little bit about uh, david crosby obviously an immensely talented but uh but a very complicated man but you you produce such wonderful work together <laughs> yeah yeah what about him uh, what do you remember best about him and and um what what should people know about him that maybe they missed
1: well he was a wonderful harmony singer um he was uh, an excellent uh songwriter and he and i were friends for a long time we, we just kind of got into that thing where groups uh, competition for getting his songs on a record and so on that that's what soured the relationship so you know, I really liked him. I I still have good memories of hanging out with him in L.A. in the early days, and it was uh, we had a lot of fun together for a long time.
0: What do you see as the state of, of music today? Uh, record companies don't have the power that they once had, and uh, anybody can can get their song out there. But uh, there's also a lot more competition with a a pretty chock full internet. Would would it be tougher to get started as a young performer and artist today?
1: Well, I think about Justin Bieber being discovered on YouTube, or Billy, at least, uh, if you pronounce it that way, I don't know, um, on TikTok. And, you know, people are getting discovered. If you really have something good, people find it and notice it.
0: Now, the partnership uh, that you've been a part of that's really stood the test of time is uh, you and Camilla, nearly 50 years together. Congratulations on that. And, and what, what kind of a difference has she made, uh, not just in your life, but with your music?
1: Well, she and I write songs together. We have since uh, we got together back in the 70s. And um, she's just really wonderful. She does business. Uh, she does all, most, of, most of the business. And it's like having a um, manager and a business manager and a songwriter. And, you know, she, she wears all these different hats. So I really am happy that um, we got put together.
0: You no, know, I, I read on on her blog uh, on the website that back during COVID you uh, you were pretty much locked down and staying right there. Was there a time when you thought? Well, well, that's it. I'm I'm done going out on the road to play music.
1: We did think about it because we loved uh, being home. We we had a good time at home, and so I didn't really go out for a year or so. It was okay, but uh, then we got back on the road and we said, "Oh yeah, we, we got to keep doing this. This is great."
0: Well, we can't wait to see you September 13th, a Wednesday night at the Waldo Theater in Walderboro. It's going to be a great show, and it's been so wonderful for us to have a chance to talk with you today. Thank you for making some time for us. You're welcome, Matt. I'm looking forward to the show. It's Roger McGuinn on downtown. We'll take a little break, a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, Jim Axelrod of CBS News.
1: Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small
3: family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Been atop
0: the New York skyline, sailed
1: across the ocean blue.
0: Little Roger McGuinn right there with old birds, pals, Gene Clark and Chris Hillman. We're back on downtown and uh, time for an interesting conversation with the senior correspondent for CBS News. He has had an interesting career. We talk about some of the highlights with Jim Axelrod here on downtown. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hey, buddy. How are you? I am great, thank you. Appreciate you making some time for us today. Of course, of course. Happy to help. Well, uh, let's jump right into it here and let's right. let's start about the beginning, which was right here in Bangor, Maine. How did you end up breaking into the news business in Bangor?
3: Yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. I was uh, a graduate student studying history, and it was uh, 1988, the fall, and I realized that I was paying a lot more attention to the Bush-Dukakis race than I was to my, uh, my, my reading uh, from my history degree. And so I just thought, wait a minute, uh, I may be more interested in the first draft of history than, than uh, the 100th draft of history. So I, I thought I might take a crack at TV news, only I had no experience, no, no hadn't studied it, had never done an internship, didn't know the first thing about it. So I wrote a bunch of letters to people, and there was a wonderful guy who was the news director at WVII in Bangor, a guy named Tim Geyer, who I guess uh, could recognize my desperation (laughs) and said, you can come on up and hang out in our newsroom and learn a little bit, can't pay you. I was there for about a week or two. He said, now I can pay you. Uh, And I was getting five bucks an hour, and I I felt like I was the luckiest man in the world because I was learning... Learning everything uh, I possibly could about TV news. I wasn't I wasn't in Bangor very long. I, I then ended up getting a job uh, in Utica, New York, and uh, so I was gone after like a month, maybe five weeks. But I've always been enormously grateful to Tim Geyer and WVII because without uh, without Tim and without the station, I honestly I'm not sure I'd have a career.
0: That is wonderful. Uh, well, from there, yeah, you went to Utica, uh, Syracuse, uh, down at WRAL in Raleigh, North Carolina. How did you get to CBS News?
3: Well, uh, just some good luck, I guess. Um, Raleigh and WRAL-TV was just a fantastic place to work. Uh, owned, Family-owned, the Goodman family-owned WRAL in Raleigh, still does, Capital Broadcasting. And they had, for a guy who had, been in stations that perhaps weren't overly blessed with resources. WRAL had a helicopter on the roof. They had a dedicated uh, reporter to cover the state capitol in Raleigh. That that was me. They had um, a great staff of photographers. So I learned a lot about sort of how to really do this, you know, tell a story. And uh, CBS saw a couple of things. They were a CBS affiliate. And uh, I was able to do a couple of stories that caught some attention and um, got a shot at CBS, uh, which I guess is now 27 years ago.
0: Now, yeah, you mentioned you were a history major. I'm, I'm a longtime history teacher. What interested you in history, and, and when, yeah, you know, when did you realize that you could combine those passions?
3: Yeah, I, I was interested in basically recent um, modern American political history. So I had written on progressive movement in Wisconsin. Uh, the La Follettes, Bob La Follette's, mm. um, and had uh, studied that. I, I realized, though, that the pursuit of history as a profession, academic history, um, provides muscle, uh, requires muscles that I hadn't really developed. Um, and so I don't know that I would have been any good at it. Um, I did. I do love history, and I do love understanding you know, those who um, forget history are condemned to relive it, the wise man said. And I, I've always tried to have a grounding, especially in covering uh, certain things such as politics. History is sort of an essential. It's not an option. Um, but I, I didn't really understand until I was a, a, a graduate student at Brown University in Providence that that I would um, be able to take some of what I love, meaning the narrative of what has happened, and apply it to sort of understanding the narrative of what is happening. That's why I think, you know, journalism, broadcast Mm -hmm. journalism in particular, sort of a natural extension of that for me.
0: You have traveled the world, uh, including uh, being one of the embedded correspondents for CBS uh, during uh, uh, the time Mm -hmm. you prepare for an experience like that as a reporter.
3: Yeah, you find some people who've done it a bunch of times before. CBS News, of course, uh, had a stable, very gifted work. Correspondents, photographers, producers. So I was very lucky to be able to take advantage of uh, people in this business um, who'd, who'd been there and done that before. Um, you know, it is a harrowing experience. I was there uh, with the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Infantry as they took the Saddam Hussein Airport. And, and then years later, uh, eight years later, I was in the last Humvee out of Iraq for the military. Um, In December of 2011, so uh, it was quite a bookend of an experience. Uh, I sort of learned a lot about uh, my own personal capacity. I I don't come from a long line of brave people, (laughs) (laughs) as I said before. But um, you know, nothing focuses you as much uh, as something like um, the the danger of covering conflict. Uh, Also, have come in place where the military was uh, a, a particularly prominent part of my life, I gained an enormous respect for the men and women of the United States military and their capacity to do their jobs under the most extraordinarily difficult uh, set of conditions. So all in all, uh, while it, it certainly left me um, quite shaken, uh, and, and there was some obvious sort of fallout from, from watching, uh, you know, the beginning of a war unfold, at the end of a war, or at least the end of the active uh, phase of involvement, um, it, it also sort of deepened my understanding of the world in which we live.
0: We're talking with Jim Axelrod here, a and a, and a unique perspective on one of the biggest news stories of the last 25 or, or probably even 50 years, and that's the events of
3: 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, um, 9-11 is a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, for me, it was also my eighth wedding anniversary. Uh, we were there first. Uh, and so I was home a little bit, uh, later than my normal day. Um, I just having an extra cup of coffee with my wife. Uh, got on my bus to go to the city, couldn't get through the Lincoln tunnel and suddenly began to get on, on what at that point were pagers. Uh, I just kept getting the number to call the newsroom and finally I got through and was told what was happening. I was five or six miles away, but I might as well have been a thousand miles away in terms of my ability to get there. Finally got in, uh, late in the afternoon. And, um, uh, two weeks later was in Afghanistan. So it was, uh, another sort of harrowing experience, but I didn't realize this till many, many, many years later, I was at the nine 11 museum, which I highly recommend to anybody Mm. who's ever in New York city, uh, as a tourist, you gotta go to the nine 11 museum. And it's just a, moving, spectacularly done, but a deeply emotional place to spend some time. And when I got to one part of the exhibit, I looked up and they were saying, oh, the name Ground Zero, Ground Zero. And I'm like following this. And I'm, I'm like, it's an odd experience, but I'm, I'm seeing my name. And I guess the folks did the research and I have no recollection of this. I remember using the term, but I was given credit for... Using ground zero in relation to 9-11, I was the first journalist to do that. Uh, So I've always, it's just an odd connection to a horrendous, horrible day in American history that I didn't even know I had until, you know, many, many, many years later.
0: You won a Peabody Award uh, for your series on the opiate crisis in West Virginia, a crisis that uh, still continues to plague us in rural areas of Maine, and we're dealing with the same thing
3: yeah I, the the thing I remember the most was feeling there was a a, a wonderful uh, coal miner, uh, Willis Duncan, who has since passed away, and he was explaining to us he had suffered an injury in the mines and he had uh, crushed had some of his um, sort of the chest area had had been re- he said the way that you know the doctors and the insurance industry, the way it was handled back then was go somewhere, and they'd write you a piece of paper, and you'd take pills, and he was hooked. And I guess it was the most, uh, in his view, a cost-effective or expedient way of handling it. And I just remember feeling like, really, it's the, the best we can do, and he said he was never talked to about it, never asked any questions about it, just would roll in, hand him the paper, and off he'd go. Um, and it was uh, our entree into understanding this scourge that has ransacked so many uh, communities, especially, as you say, in rural America, where you have you know towns four or 500 and the pharmacy. The one place, Kermit, West Virginia, where we were, it was a town of 400. And the guy who owned the local pharmacy cleared a profit of six million dollars that year. Something's not right. Something wasn't right then. Something's still not right now. And I don't, for the life of me, it's I, mean, I understand what the motivation is and the incentive and why we end up this way. But there are a generation or two of people who are suffering and whose suffering is not addressed by anything other than writing them a prescription. And I can't think of anything uh, more wrong in our culture over the last several decades.
0: Uh, you and your crew did tremendous work on reporting on the end of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy and some some heartbreaking stories about members of the military.
3: Yeah, and this one is absolutely inexcusable. Uh, we Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The policy of the United States military was uh, reversed and ended. It'll be a dozen years ago this September that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. And you still have thousands and thousands of veterans who have earned benefits they cannot access because their discharge has not been sufficiently upgraded to reflect their service. In fact, they are still being penalized uh for their sexuality they're being targeted for their sexuality they are paying a price to this day even though the policy is no longer in place because of their sexuality and we can't get the Pentagon to come we're having another story coming up uh, in a couple of weeks and we will continue following this because you know the veterans the VA certainly has found a workaround to provide some of these veterans with the benefits that they long since earned but can't access, but the Pentagon still won't address this. And so we keep asking this question, why so many years later will the Pentagon not address this clear injustice that affects thousands and thousands of veterans? And I keep asking a question, is it bureaucratic inertia or is it lingering homophobia? And I Mm -hmm. still can't get anyone from the Pentagon to answer that straight up.
0: Jim, is it more difficult for journalists to cover politics these days when you have, in many cases, uh, not just politicians, but voters who live in seemingly entirely different universes?
3: Yeah, you know, it is a very challenging time, obviously the most challenging uh, environment, I think, for journalists. And I think all you can really do as a journalist is do your work in a way that uh, is transparent. And it stands up to examination and reflects sort of the the best uh, ethics and approach to the job. Um, you can't control, you know. As I always say, as I always say to my kids about anything, you control process, not outcome. I can't control what somebody's going to think of my work, and I can control, and the only thing I can control is the process that I use to complete my work. So as long as I feel that I'm telling a story in an ethical manner uh, that reflects the best traditions of CBS News and the best traditions of broadcast journalism, then what am I going to do if somebody comes after me on Twitter? You know, we recently did a story about, um, and I'll give you a perfect example. So we broke the story about the whistleblower in the Hunter Biden case, Mm. uh, who was the IRS uh, agent, supervisory agent who said that he was uh, treated in a way the investigation was impeded in a way that he hadn't run into in all his time at the IRS. And we put this on and suddenly uh, it's very interesting. I started hearing from all kinds of people who I never heard from or only heard from in a critical, critical way saying, Oh, you're finally doing your job well. And then I heard from other people who, you know, had sort of always been longtime viewers saying, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you giving this guy airtime? Nothing had changed in my approach <laughs> to the work. The only thing that had changed was I had alienated one group of people who had been uh, folks who were regular viewers, and I had done some story that appealed to the viewer who who generally was always accusing uh, the place I work uh, for it with, with a liberal bias. So what's it really all about, Rich? Is it, is it about the work I'm doing, or is it about the people who are viewing
0: it? I, that's the eternal question right there uh, i reached out to you after seeing your wonderful piece a couple of weeks ago on cbs sunday morning about kareem abdul jabbar what, what a wonderfully fascinating guy he is
3: my goodness uh what a deep thinker um he, he we, it was such a treat you know he's been it's funny at 15 or 16 kareem abdul jabbar was on the ed sullivan show he was put in uh, illuminated with our brightest cultural lights available. And he stayed there for the last almost 60 years, more than 60 years, actually. So to me, I was fascinated by the fact that all a basketball fan might know about this guy is that he did remarkable things physically, right? He was the all-time NBA leading scorer when he retired. I think he made 19 all-star teams. He won six championships, six MVPs, So he had all of this record of doing things physically, but intellectually, that what was was driving him his intellectual development. He's a deep thinker. He he told us a couple of things we couldn't put on the air, but he 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 was telling us that while he you know wanted to be Will Chamberlain, he wanted to be Willie Mays more. He said he loved baseball. He wanted to be Miles Davis more than both of them. That and I said Miles Davis, you love jazz. I mean we we know Kareem Abdul Jabbar loves jazz. He goes. Basketball is jazz. I what an interesting thought that mm. is, the improvisational nature of that game. He has been thinking deep thoughts for decades. And you might not know because, you know, people think, oh, Kareem Skyhook. No, 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 no. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a brilliant, deep
0: thinker. Another deep thinker that you spoke with recently was Bruce Springsteen. Looking back at the the making of his Nebraska album, and to me, that's that's such an interesting decision that he made at that point in his career. He'd come off the huge success of the River, and then to make this intimate, deeply personal, and not terribly commercial album.
3: You know, it's beautiful about that. Uh, aside from uh, a guy from New Jersey getting to sit and and <laughs> and talk to him for a couple of hours. Um, he was really connected to the notion that he wanted people to understand the valley he was walking through at the time that he made Nebraska. So he was coming off the river tour. it was before the born in the USA tour, but he was a rock star in every sense of the word and yet he was having a great deal of of despair in his life. He was at a personal crossroads. He was wondering, why the success wasn't translating into any sustained sense of well-being. Now, that's a pretty sophisticated point Mm. and certainly a highly personal point. And his wanting to share that, I felt, was uh, sort of deeply meaningful and um, sort of putting himself in service to a lot of people say, hey, I said to him in the interview, I said, I guess you can't succeed your way out of pain. And he said, no, you cannot, (laughs) as if that was the most important thought that he wanted to get across to people was, you know, no matter what you do in life, no matter how many houses you have, no matter how much money you make, no matter if you're Bruce Springsteen, if you're one of the world's great rock stars, that is no guarantee that there are not going to be things you have to stare down in life that no amount of success is going to insulate you from. I thought that was, you know, in our current sort of culture. You don't hear the five-star, high-wattage, bold-faced names speak in those honest, searingly honest terms about the pain that's just part of life.
0: Well, it was a great conversation. And, Jim, you've you've carved out such a wonderful position for yourself with CBS. You're the chief investigative correspondent. You're covering hard news. You're doing investigative reporting. You're interviewing incredibly interesting people. It's got to feel good after Know, Twenty-seven years there, and, and what nearly what thirty-five or so in the business to, to be at a point where uh, you get to do so much that's both important and interesting and introspective in many ways.
3: Well, you're very, very kind, and, and I, I deeply appreciate. I, I don't think of it in those terms, so uh, I'm grateful to hear you uh, sum it up that way. Uh, all I can say is it is such a privilege to be able to to you know, sort of make a living doing this kind of work. We, I think you know this uh, instinctively, Richie, like we understand the world as human beings through stories. I think we've done that since we were living in caves, right? We sit around the fire and we tell stories to each other. And that's how we understand life. And so being able to make a living telling stories, uh, although ours are, you know, sort of always always rooted in fact, but stories nonetheless, you uh, I, I just feel like it's been uh, quite a blessing to be able to make a living doing that kind of work.
0: Well, it's great to uh, finally have a chance to talk with you here. We appreciate you carving out some time for us. And, and now, of course, every time we see you on television or we talk about one of your great pieces here, we'll always preface it with Jim Axelrod, who, by the way, <laughs> started his career in Bangor, Maine.
3: <laughs> well, listen, you you are such a gentleman, uh, and I so deeply appreciate Uh, you spent a few minutes allowing me to spend a few minutes with you and and your listeners. And thank you.
0: Well, we appreciate it. Keep doing what you're doing and we'll talk again down the road.
3: I hope so. Take good care.
0: Our thanks to Jim Axelrod of CBS News and the great Roger McGuinn. And of course, to you for joining us this week. Downtown brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. See you next time right here on Downtown.